So if you have your Bibles with you today, let's go ahead and we're going to open up to the book of Acts, chapter number 10. So we've been doing a study in the book of Acts, and we've been following as the Lord is working, as His Spirit is working, in beginning and establishing the church. We've been seeing how He's been operating through His apostles and through His believers, and uh, how much that we find that even the apostles are taking a, a back seat to several other believers. And uh, we, we focus a lot of times on Peter and on, on Paul and on some of these others, but we find that the Lord is not prejudiced in who he uses, that oftentimes that the apostles were slow to catch on. They were slow to figure it out. They were sticking around there in Jerusalem. And, and in the meantime, there were other people such as uh, Ananias and uh, Philip and uh, different ones that went out and was doing the work and kind of beating them to it. And so we've been seeing that going on. But all in all, we find that, as Jesus said, he said he would build his church, and it is him that is building the church. It is him that's working in it. Uh, we see the the early church working through uh, trials and difficulties and uh, even some contentions that arise, persecution that arises. But through it all, we see how they're handling all of this, and God is using it to grow them, to strengthen them, to build his church. And it's an amazing thing as we see this happening through the book of Acts, because if you think about it, uh, it started out as being such a small thing. We have Jesus as he is uh, leading his small group of followers, his disciples on the earth. And he says that he doesn't commit himself to any man because he knows what's in a man. There'll be times that the multitudes grow and then they get offended and they run off and then they come back and they run off and, and all that going on. And then whenever he dies, there's a small group in the upper room. There's then a group of about 250. Then he appears to 500. And then on the day of Pentecost, thousands get saved. And then from there, it's added to the church daily. And then there's another a couple thousand get saved. And then uh, they are ministering and they're working through problems and they have growing pains and all these things. But the persecution comes, and all of those people, still very new to the faith, are scattered abroad everywhere, but they are excited about Christ and about the things that uh, he's doing in their lives. So wherever they go, they are telling everyone, they are proclaiming the gospel wherever they go. And so more people are being saved, and then it starts spilling over beyond the Jews and into the Samaritans and into the Gentiles. And we see it takes from there, and in a very short amount of time, because of what God is doing in people's lives, because of the Holy Spirit in people's lives, that it engulfs the entire region. And I believe by the end of Paul's life that really the gospel had expanded throughout all of Europe and most of Asia, and it made its way down through parts of Africa, just in Paul's lifetime in the first generation of Christians. And since then, it has went around the world. And there's very few people on this earth today who has not heard the name of Christ, okay? Very few people who have not heard of Jesus. And many people have really even become uh, what some people call gospel-hardened. They have heard it so much that it's lost its effectiveness because it's become so familiar. And so we see that God has done an amazing work in getting out his gospel to the entire world because at the very heart of all of this and what we've been seeing is God desires that mankind be saved. From the beginning of this book to the end of this book, it is God working in mankind in this world, in the hearts of men, 
to draw them to himself for their salvation. Okay, From the time that we see in uh, Genesis chapter number 3 with the fall of Adam and Eve whenever they sinned in the garden, God has continued working to bring about salvation. And that's the story of the entire Bible is how God is working and bringing salvation to men. And so we really see that highlighted in the book of Acts. And so as you found your, your place there in Acts chapter 10, chapter 10, let's go ahead and we'll go to the Lord in prayer before we read, and then we'll dive into this today. Dear Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for the opportunity that we have, Lord, to uh, gather together and to study your word, to learn from it, to grow from it. And Lord, we just ask you to work in our hearts and lives today. Help us, Lord, that our uh, our attention would be focused upon you, Lord, that our hearts would be drawn close to you, that our understanding would be open, Lord, and Lord, that we would be strengthened in our faith through this. I pray that you do the needed work in the hearts of li- hearts and lives of everyone here today. Pray be with those who are unable to be with us through work or illness or whatever, and be with those who are still on their way out today, Lord. I just pray that you be with our time together and that you bless it. We thank you so much for all that you do, and all these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so I didn't cover this yet, but last week what we looked at, Peter did... Two miracles. He uh, healed the the paralyzed man, Aeneas, and he raised up Tabitha from the dead. And when we look at those two miracles, a lot of times it is the miracles that we focus on. It is the miracles that stand out and seem to be important to us. But the real reason and the real purpose behind those passages and behind those miracles was not for us to see the miracles, but those miracles were done for people to be receptive to the gospel, okay? God was working in front of people and working through men like Peter so that they would be willing to listen to what Peter had to say so that his words would carry weight and would be a witness to them so that they would believe. And as I said a moment ago, everything that God is doing is for the salvation of mankind. And so even though Peter raised someone from the dead, even though Peter caused a man who had kept his bed for eight years to be able to walk again, that in both of those situations, Peter wasn't drawing attention to himself. He wasn't drawing praise to himself. He was pointing people to Christ. And the result that we see of both of these aren't people getting infatuated with miracles and seeking after signs and wonders. It is people coming to a saving faith in Christ. That's the purpose behind it. And there is even a, uh, in these passages, there is an emphasis on the things that we do and the way that we act and the way that we live in this world being for a witness to those who are around us. So what Peter did had an effect on those who saw and heard for the glory of God and for the salvation of men. What Aeneas did whenever he rose up and whenever he was able to walk, everyone saw what God did in his life, and that witness and that testimony brought people to God. With Tabitha, it's highlighting her as a Christian. Everyone loved her. Everybody uh, regarded her, greatly honored her because of the way that she lived her life and her selflessness and her generosity and everything. So that whenever she died, everyone said this was one of God's servants and they asked Peter to come and God rose her up from the dead through Peter. And once again, there was many people who come to Christ because of what Peter had done Uh, what God had done through Peter, and because of the testimony of this woman. And so we're encouraged by this, that we live our lives in such a way that those who 
come in contact with us. So those who know us will come to know him because they know us, right? We, know, we may not be doing signs and wonders and miracles and things like that. You may not raise someone from the dead, but you can display the love and the grace and the mercy of God in your life in such a way that people come to a saving knowledge of Christ because of the testimony that you carry in your life, okay? And so today what we're going to be looking at is uh, the way that God works in this story of Cornelius, okay? In Acts chapter number 10, this is Cornelius. This is the gospel going to the Gentiles. We know that the Ethiopian had received the gospel under Philip out in the desert of Gaza, uh, but there wasn't a whole lot that was said as a result of that, uh, not a whole lot that was going on there. But we find that up until this point in time, the gospel was primarily going to Jewish people. They had extended into the regions of Samaria whenever uh, Philip had went there and preached the gospel, and many got saved, and the, uh, the church in Jerusalem heard about it, and Peter and different ones came down and laid their hands on them. They received the Holy Spirit, and they're like, well, okay, uh, God accepts the Jews. He accepts the part Jews, right? But we're still not sure about the Gentiles, okay? And so now there's another barrier that must be knocked down, another door that must be opened up, we find that whenever Jesus was still uh, walking amongst his disciples, he, he gave them the keys of the kingdom, so to speak. They're not literal keys, but he's saying, I'm leaving you with a responsibility to open up some of these doors. And we find that each step, whenever they move beyond uh, Jerusalem and Judea into Samaria, the apostles were there to open up that door. And then whenever God was ready for the gospel to go on into the land of the Gentiles, then once again, he had the apostles there to open up that door. And basically the door gets kicked wide open and many Gentiles believe in the, the church expands throughout the world, right? And so we see this as a process. But one thing that I want us to uh, see from this, one thing that I want us to emphasize is God's hand in all of it. Because what we tend to do as believers is we put way too much emphasis on ourselves. We put too much emphasis on well, what do I need to do? Uh, what is the right direction for me to go? How do I accomplish this? How do I see results? And so what we end up doing is we take charge, we take the lead, we take control. And rather than being surrendered to God and allowing God to lead and to direct us, and instead of letting him uh, direct our steps, we're running out ahead of God and trying to figure it out on our own. We are like Peter back whenever he was still uh, the disciple of Jesus rather than Peter the Apostle. It seems like there's a complete difference there. But you know how we talk many times about Peter, how he was the one that was rushing forth, and he was the one that would call out Jesus, and he was the one that would say, even with what we're going to look at today, he'd say, not so, Lord. This isn't going to... And he would argue with the Lord because he thought he knew better than the Lord. Have you ever been there? And so what we're going to find out, maybe I'll get a little bit ahead of myself in this, but what we're going to find out is that if we are seeking the Lord, if we are serving him, if we are living for him, then he is going to direct our steps. He is going to guide us where he wants us to be. He's going to cause to happen what he wants to happen. And it's not going to be up to us to try to make it happen or try to figure it out. Because if we are following him, he is going to lead us right where he wants us. Okay? Mm -hmm. And so we're going to see that highlighted today. So let's go ahead and jump into Acts chapter number 10. 
And really, I want to cover a lot of ground today. I really want to cover the whole chapter, but I'm not going to read the whole chapter up front, okay? Because you all already tune out and you'll be done with me before we even get started. Uh, but anyway, uh, Acts chapter number 10, verse number one, it says, There was a certain man in Caesarea called Cornelius, a centurion of the band called the Italian band, a devout man and one that feared God with all his house, which gave much alms to the people and prayed to God always. He saw in a vision evidently about the ninth hour of the day, an angel of God coming in to him and saying unto him, Cornelius. And when he looked on him, he was afraid and said, What is it, Lord? And he said unto him, Thy prayers and thine alms are come up for a memorial before God. And now send men to Joppa and call for one Simon, whose surname is Peter. He lodgeth with one Simon a tanner, whose house is by the seaside, he shall tell thee what thou oughtest to do. And when the angel which spake unto Cornelius was departed, he called two of his household servants and a devout soldier of them that waited on him continually. And when he had declared all these things unto them, he sent them to Joppa. And so here we're introduced to Cornelius. To get a little bit of an idea about Cornelius and who he is and what this passage is about, it tells us here that Cornelius was a centurion. That means that he was an officer within the Roman military, and he was placed over a band of 100 soldiers, okay? And so he had some authority, he had some power, he had men who were uh, directly under him, who honored him, who obeyed him, who did his uh, requests, okay? But they were living in Caesarea, which is uh, within Israel, and Israel was occupied by the Romans during that time. And so he had a band of soldiers in Caesarea, in Israel, and the Jews despised the Romans. They despised the Roman occupation. They didn't like having the soldiers around, and typically the Romans didn't care much for the Jews. Typically the Romans and the soldiers would mistreat the Jews, would abuse their power, and all these different things. But we find that Cornelius was different, okay? Cornelius had been brought up, most likely he would have been uh, not just some national, he may have been an actual Roman from Italy. It says that he was part of a group called the Italian Band. So he may have actually been from Italy. He may have been even by blood, he may have been Roman, okay? Because the Romans would have had people from all over. It would have been very multicultural, even in the army. But anyway, he's part of the Italian band. He was probably even from Italy. And being from that area with all of the Roman religion and the Roman gods and mythology and mysticism and all of that, that would have been the religion that he had been used to. And somewhere along the lines, he became dissatisfied with the paganism. He became dissatisfied with all of these false gods. And whenever he was around the Jews, even as messed up as the Jews were at that time, and as messed up as the Jews' religion was at that time, as far as they had ventured away from God, he saw the God of the Jews, and he realized that God was different from all of the petty and pagan gods that he was familiar with. He started observing and learning about the God of Israel and seeing the works that their God had done, started seeing what their God was like, started understanding who their God was and seeing what he had done for his people. And he observed the Jewish religion 
and he says there's something different about it. And so he became a worshiper of the God of Israel, even as a Roman occupier. So he had rejected his paganism, he had rejected his Roman religion, and he had become a worshiper of God. And it says that he had prayed to God continually, that he was giving of alms, that he was uh, doing all these things. It doesn't seem as if he became uh, an actual uh, Jewish convert in that he wouldn't have crossed that bridge of circumcision. He wouldn't be offering up the sacrifices of the temple and those kind of things. He didn't become a Jew. He still re remained as a Roman, as a Gentile, but he was one that revered God. He was one that respected the God of Israel, and he was searching for truth. He was desiring to know God. And as a result, God intervened. Whenever we are in search for truth, whenever we are seriously wanting God, desiring God, looking for God, he doesn't hide from us. Instead, he makes himself known to those who want to know him. And so this is what we see with Cornelius. And by the way, I don't believe that this was even a one-time event. We see the same thing going on with the Ethiopian, right? The Ethiopian was a Gentile who was coming up to worship at Jerusalem, and he was searching for God. He wanted to know the truth. And God brought Philip all the way from Samaria down to Gaza to meet him in his chariot in the middle of nowhere so that he would hear the gospel and be saved. This man, Cornelius, he wanted to know God. He wanted to know the truth. He was sincerely desiring, and God honored that desire and that sincere hunger of his heart, and he brought uh, Peter, as we'll see, down to come to him and to preach the gospel to him that he would be saved. I would venture to say, and this one might be stretching just a little bit, so you do with it what you will. I'd venture to say that Paul would even be in the same category. And the reason why I say this is Paul was sincere. He wanted to serve God with all his heart, but religion had corrupted that zeal. Religion had misled him, and so God saw his heart and said, this man wants to serve me, but he's a bit confused. I'm going to take the steps, and I'm going to set that straight. And so he blinds him on the road to Damascus, and he or intervenes pretty miraculously in the life of Paul, but it was because of that desire in his heart. He desired the true God. He desired to serve him, even though he was misled, and God set him on the right path. And so in a way, we can see that Cornelius, the Ethiopian eunuch, and Saul of Tarsus, all three are examples of men who were open, who were willing to receive God, but they didn't know where to start. Uh, and whenever we come to these, we find that it displays God's desire to save man. This has been the thing that I've been emphasizing from the beginning. But there are plenty of people in this world who have no desire for God. They are resistant to him. They don't care for the truth. They are content with the lies that they believe. They are content with the religion that they have. And for those people, they have shut out God. But for the ones who desire him, he will make himself known. He will show himself faithful. He will show himself true. In Jeremiah 29, 13 he says that uh, for those who seek him with all their heart, he will be found of them. Okay? Yes. 
And so this is the thing. If we're seeking after him, he's not playing a game of hide and seek. He's not trying to uh, make you have to search. He's not trying to make himself uh, some difficult thing like a needle in a haystack. But instead, he just wants our heart. He wants our desire. He just wants us to want him. Does that make sense? And that is what pleases him. We talked about this on Wednesday night, that God is glorified by his creation. He seeks uh, creation to glorify him. That's one of the reasons why we are created. And what brings him glory is whenever we love, we trust, we seek after him, right? When we acknowledge him for who he is, whenever we lift him up as being the good, the loving, the merciful, the faithful, the holy God of creation, that glorifies him. And so whenever he looks down and he sees a man like Cornelius who is striving to live a moral, a good life, whenever he is uh, doing good to those around him, whenever he is uh, seeking and he is praying to God and he's saying, I'm not sure how all this works. I'm not sure who you are, but I believe that you're there and I'm looking for you, God. Reveal yourself to me. And God says, I'm more than happy to do that. I'll send somebody there to do so. And now we might get tied up in this whole thing of angels visiting and whatnot. Uh, truthfully, today, we've got the word of God. We've got many believers around. There's, many, there's much access to the truth that if someone is seeking God, if someone is desiring God, he's not too hard to find. But this early time, there wasn't a whole lot of opportunity for Cornelius. There was not a, a real good connection for him to make, right? And so I'm just saying this to de-emphasize people that get enamored with angels and miracles and all these different things. That is not God's emphasis. God can use those things. God is still even, I'll, I'll admit that, God is still able to use the miraculous. He's still able to do the extraordinary to get to people. But if you are sitting in a church and hearing the word of God going out and you're resistant to it in a church, uh, God doesn't need to send you an angel, right? If you are in a place where the word of God is available and you're not seeking it out, he's not going to send an angel. But I will say that I'll leave the opportunity, the, uh, the, the room to work there for those who have no access to the word of God, for those who don't know where to look or there's no place for them to find or they don't have that opportunity. Honestly, anything is possible. And God can work through extraordinary means to make connections. Okay? And even with that, I've heard stories, I've seen such things happening. Of people. One story that I, I like to tell, okay? And so uh, bear with me for just a moment on this, but I always thought this was extraordinary. But there was a, uh, a preacher that I heard at one point in time that um, he and a... a another preacher friend of his, was traveling to a meeting, okay? They were traveling to a meeting. They were uh, going through the, the Midwest in America, which is farms and fields as far as the eyes can see, okay? And so as they were driving, the one preacher told the other one, he said, stop the car for just a minute. Uh, I feel as if I just need to get out right now and preach. To the cornfields. And the preacher laughed at him, and he said, okay, whatever. And he pulled over, and the guy got out, and he preached a sermon to the cornfield. 
He got back in the car and the guy laughed at him. And he said, you feel better now? He's like, yeah, okay. I, that, I did what I was supposed to do. And they went on down the road. They went to their meeting. A couple years later, they were driving through the same area and they had a meeting near where that cornfield was. And they went to the church and he was preaching in that church. And a woman approached him afterward. And she says, you don't know me. You don't recognize me, but I recognize your voice. I've heard you before. She said, you remember a couple years ago, you stopped alongside the road in a cornfield and you preached the gospel. He's like, yeah, I remember. She said, well, I was out in that cornfield. I was searching. I didn't know which way to go. I didn't know which way to turn. And all of a sudden, I heard someone telling me about Jesus. And I trusted him. I got saved. I got connected with this church. And I've been serving in this church. I've been learning about God. I've been discipled here for the past two years. And so that is an example. You say, well, that's, that's weird. Yeah, it is. But that is one of the occasions, one of the things that God will do to get his message out to those who need it. Because God desires people to be saved. And I'm saying that don't expect all these extraordinary things. It very well could happen, especially if you are living for God, if you are seeking his will. I'm getting ahead of myself because I'm not to Peter yet. But if you're living for God, if you're doing his will, if you are willing and submitted and listening to his spirit, he can guide you right to the people who are open and ready and searching and willing. God can guide you to those. He can set up these, uh, these special appointments, if you will, if you're willing to be used of him, if you're willing to listen to his spirit, if you're willing to look foolish occasionally like that preacher preaching to the cornfield. He can lead you right to someone who needs to hear the word. I heard a story this past week, maybe the week before, of a man that was uh, driving down the road. It seems like this happens a lot when you're driving, right? And anyway, there was a man alongside the road that was uh, hitchhiking. And the, the man who was driving had just prayed and said, God, I, I want you to use me however you want to use me. I want to do your will. Okay, he just he just prayed that out and and as he was going down the road, as he saw this hitchhiker, for some reason, it just started, there was this feeling, and I don't want to get hung up on feelings either, but there was just this overwhelming thought that he couldn't get rid of, he couldn't get away from, that God wanted him to give this guy a lift. And he had already got down the road another kilometer or two, and he turned around and he came back, and he pulled over and he let this guy in, and he started down the road, and he's like, okay, I hope this guy didn't murder me, Right? Hitchhiker. And he just kept feeling as if the Lord wanted him to say something and try to be a witness to this guy. And so as he talked to this man, and he's this big, burly-looking, kind of intimidating-looking guy, he started asking him about his beliefs and about if he was saved and things, and the guy broke down in tears. And he said, I've had the worst of day. My life is a wreck. And I just pray, God... If you're real, if you're there, send one of your people to tell me about you. And you came and you stopped. And here you are. And the man trusted Christ in that car. And that's pretty incredible, isn't it? And so as we're looking at Cornelius, Cornelius is in the same boat. He is despised. He is hated by the Jews for the most part. He's seen as an outsider. He's seen as an interloper. He's seen as an invader on their soil. But he sees their God and just something about their God has him curious. 
has him wondering there about what's going on, who this God is, how can I know him? And he begins praying to God. He begins, and it doesn't record his prayers. It doesn't say what he was praying. But as it's recording this in scripture, we see that his heart is toward God. He wants to know God. And God says, I'll honor that. I'll do something. I will send somebody to tell you about me. And so there in Acts chapter number 10, Cornelius receives this message from God and says, if you will send somebody down to Joppa to the house of Simon the Tanner and ask for Peter, he'll come and tell you what you need to know. Something else interesting about this is that God could have had the angel to tell the gospel to him, right? God could have came down. He could have rode across a billboard. He could have done anything he wanted to do. But God chooses to work through men. He chooses to employ believers in his work. He chooses to have the body of Christ to be his mouthpiece to this world, right? And so over and over, we see whenever someone needs to hear the gospel, whenever someone is looking for God, God connects them with one of his children. That's important because if you are a child of God in here today, if you are born again, if you are a believer, God desires to put you in the path of others who need to know about him. God desires to connect your life with people who need him. Because God is not going to work through sending an angel or dreams or visions to get people saved. He's going to be bringing people into those people's lives. He may use some uh, strange or even miraculous things to bring that connection together. And he's more than capable of doing so. But ultimately, he's needing his people to be willing to do his work. And that's where it brings us to Peter here in Uh, verse number nine. We'll go ahead and read here in verse number nine and see what God has to do with Peter. So he's he's prepared Cornelius. He said, okay, you're seeking after me. I'm going to send you to someone who's going to tell you what you need to do. And so in verse number nine, it says, on the morrow, as they went on their journey and drew nigh unto the city, Peter went up on the housetop to pray about the sixth hour. And he became very hungry and would have eaten, but while they made ready, he fell into a trance and saw heaven opened and a certain vessel descending unto him as it had been a great sheet knit at the four corners and let down to the earth, wherein were all manner of four-footed beasts of the earth and wild beasts and creeping things and fowls of the air. And there came a voice unto him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, Not so, Lord. that That always kind of stands out to me whenever... Uh, the Lord is speaking to Peter, and he argues with God. I already brought this out earlier, but we're, we tend to do the same thing. We argue with God sometimes, and we know what God wants us to do. God's leading us in a direction, and we're like, yeah, no, I'm not comfortable with that. Not so, Lord. But uh, Acts 10, verse 14, it says, and Peter said, not so, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice spake unto him again the second time, what, call, uh, what God hath cleansed, that call thou not uh, common. This was done thrice, and the vessel was received up again into heaven. Now while Peter doubted in himself what this vision, which he had seen, should mean, behold, the men which were sent from Cornelius had made inquiry for Simon's house and stood before the gate, 
and called and asked whether Simon, which was surnamed Peter, were lodged there. While Peter thought on the vision, the Spirit said unto him, Behold, three men seek thee. Arise therefore, and get thee down, and go with them, doubting nothing, for I have sent them. Then Peter went down to the men which were sent unto him from Cornelius, and said, Behold, I am he whom ye seek. What is the cause wherefore ye are come? And they said, Cornelius the centurion, a just man, one that feareth God, and of good report among all the nations, all the nation of the Jews, was warned from God by a holy angel to send for thee into this house and to hear words of thee. And so now we find Peter in an interesting situation. Okay, notice it says this is the next day. And we often just read this story through, and we never actually separate scene by scene what's going on. So on the day that the Lord is dealing with Cornelius, and the Lord is speaking Peter's name to Cornelius, Peter is completely oblivious that any of that's going on all the way over in Caesarea. Peter has no idea what God is doing, what God is preparing, what this man is seeking, and how the Lord is making these connections. Peter isn't uh, trying to figure out and trying to make ways and inroads and inquests and things. He's not plotting out his journey and saying, this is going to be the next step I'm going to do. He's not searching out Cornelius. He's not doing any of these things. Peter is living his life over here in Joppa, doing the will of God over here. He's living as a righteous man. He is trying to do the things that are pleasing to the Lord. He's trying to be a good witness and a testimony where he's at. He is uh, preaching to the people that come to him. He's discipling the believers there in Joppa. He is going up to the top of the house, and he is praying. He's seeking. He is living as a Christian in the place where he's at, and he has no idea that God is speaking to Cornelius about him. He has no idea that there are men that are sent on their way to come to his house. He knows nothing about it until in this verse, whenever the Lord speaks to him, and says, there are men here that I have sent to you. Go with them and don't doubt any of it. Just trust me. That's whenever Peter first finds out about it. The reason I bring all this out is for you as believers, you have no idea what God is working in the background. You have no idea what God is doing in the next town, the next village, the next country, or wherever else. You have no idea uh, whose uh, ear he has placed your name in. You have no idea how God is working to bring people together into your life to bring about his will. And there's no way that you could. And honestly, you have no business knowing because that's God's business. But it raises up our understanding and our attention just a little bit to see how God does work in our lives and how he does uh, things that we have no idea he's even doing until they actually come into our lives. We're not even going to know all of the different things that he had to do to bring that into place. Now, could you imagine Peter, the Jew, in Joppa, which is in Israel, in the house of Simon the Tanner, which is a Jew, all of a sudden, while he's upstairs waiting on them to finish fixing dinner, a Roman soldier and two servants come knocking at the door looking for him. You think that'd be a little bit troubling if it wasn't for everything else that God was doing to prepare Peter for this? 
You remember how they've already been persecuted. They've been driven to other lands and different things because they were preaching the word. And Peter is somewhat of a ringleader in this. And now, hey, Peter, the Romans are looking for you. And Peter says, let me go hide somewhere. Right? But not only was God preparing Cornelius, God was preparing Peter. And so whenever these guys come, he's already ready. He's already prepared. Now, I want to go back just a little bit and see why God had to do some preparation for Peter. Remember, I said Peter was a Jew. And so being a Jew, they had prejudices. And we've talked about their prejudices in the past. But one thing, uh, one thing that we find here is that God deals with him with the things that are eaten or not eaten. Uh, Peter was hungry at this time. This wasn't just a vision out of being hungry, by the way. But God is using Peter's circumstances, the current things that's on Peter's mind. Peter's trying to pray, and he can't pray because his stomach's growling. Right? You ever been there? And so he can't pray because his stomach's growling. And God says, okay, I'm going to use Peter's current situation to teach him something. Whenever there are things that we need to learn, whenever there are lessons that we need in our lives, God will work through our circumstances to teach us the lessons we need. And oftentimes, the things that we go through, the circumstances that we face, God uses those to prepare us for what's just down the road. He uses those to prepare us for ministry opportunities and different things like that. Because a lot of times, the the trials that you go through, the difficulties you face, the experiences you have are preparing you so that you are able to minister to other people. I found oftentimes that Whenever there is a need in people's life, they are going through something. There can be a Christian that says, hey, I've already been through that, and they are prepared and they are able to minister there. And they didn't realize that whenever they were going through this, that God was going to use them later to be a blessing in someone's life because of the experience they went through. And all of these things that we're talking about, it is God working behind the scenes. It is God working in the lives of his children It's God working in his creation to bring about his purpose and his plans. And so my desire through all this is to see how big God is, to see how involved God is, because in our minds a lot of times we think that God is kind of hands-off, far away, removed, that he, he doesn't care about every little detail in our lives, that he's not involved in all these different things, as if it's all up to us to figure it out on our own. And in every step of this, we find that God is in control, that God is involved, that God knows what he's doing and his people don't even realize it, right? And so as Peter, I was talking about his his prejudices there, him being a Jew, uh, they are commanded by the Mosaic law to not eat certain foods. They couldn't eat, uh, couldn't eat pork. They couldn't eat uh, catfish. They couldn't eat shrimp and lobster, okay? They couldn't eat horses or camels or all kinds of different things, okay? And God had a purpose for that, uh, those dietary restrictions. The Jews were intended to be a set-apart people, a special people. And those dietary restrictions caused them to be separated from the pagan lands that were around them. Not only that, but if you were a Jew... You couldn't eat at the table of a Gentile because who knows the things that they're going to be eating. So it's going to limit how much involvement that they could have in the lives of those who are not believers. And so it was going to keep them 
uh, separated, set apart, and pure to God. And think about this. Uh, one of the greatest ways for us to bond with one another, one of the greatest ways for us to build connections is over meals, right? You ever realize that? How much uh, as human beings we are connected to each other by food? Kind of crazy, isn't it? But why did God have this dietary law? He says, if you are uh, sharing meals with them, if you are joined with them, if you're not different from them, then the Jewish people are going to join with the Gentile nations and they are going to lose their identity. They are going to become absorbed by all these other countries. They are not going to become separated. And the, the people who I have chosen to bring the Messiah through, that the Lord Jesus Christ would be born from, would cease to exist. You ever think that the dietary laws was of that much importance? Something so simple kept them separated so that they would be a unique people, so that they would maintain their identity, so that Jesus Christ could be born through them. And it worked. As a matter of fact, it still works to this day. The law, not just the dietary laws, but the law that God had given them, they are still somewhat holding to it. And to this day, the Jewish people are still unique and separated and don't tend to intermix with other nations, other religions, so that many of the Jews can still trace their heritage, still even know what tribe they're of, right? That was the purpose of the law. But whenever the Savior was born, whenever Jesus came into this world, we find that he fulfilled the law. Its purpose was met. He didn't do away with it. He fulfilled it. And so the ceremonial portions of the law and the sacrifices no longer necessary because Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice. Many of the things that we find in the law no longer necessary. Some of the law wasn't ceremonial, but it was civil. It was meant so that they could govern themselves as a theocracy. They were a nation under God. And so God was showing them, okay, this is how you are to deal with crimes, and this is the way that you're to deal with each other and different things. But there was also moral aspects of the law, and I believe that hasn't changed. That still applies to this day because murder is still wrong. Adultery is still wrong. Stealing is still wrong. Covetousness is still wrong. Adultery is still wrong, right? But we no longer build battlements around our roof. We no longer uh, separate the types of materials which we make our clothing out of and not mix. Most of us probably today have mixed garments. See how there are some things that the purpose has been fulfilled. Some of it still, still here. But anyway, I'm getting off track. I'm talking about Peter. And so for Peter, he is used to, as a Jew, being a strict adherent to the law. He is used to abiding by the dietary standards. And as a result of the Jews abiding by these dietary standards, they saw anyone who didn't keep those dietary standards, as if they were unclean as well. God says, okay, don't eat the pig, it's unclean. Well, you eat the pig, so you're unclean. And so if you're unclean, I'm not going to eat with you, I'm not going to go into your house, I'm not even going to fellowship with you, I'm going to have nothing to do with you because you eat that which is unclean. And so we're seeing here a parallel between their dietary laws and their view of people. And so whenever God gives Peter this vision of this sheet let down from heaven by the four corners 
and displayed before him with all manner of beasts and animals and fowl air and creeping things on it. And he says, arise, Peter, kill and eat. He's using his stomach, his hunger at that time to teach him a lesson. And Peter responds and says, not so, because these things are common and unclean. I don't eat these things. And God says, what I have cleansed, that call thou not common or unclean. And he does it three times, and Peter is confused. He's sitting there trying to figure out. He's like, okay, I know that that wasn't just a normal dream. I know that's not something that is of no significance. He says, I know this is of God. I know there is a lesson in here. I know God is trying to teach me something, but what is it? And he doesn't have to wait long. He doesn't have to search it out. He doesn't have to go and ask 20 different people. God makes it pretty clear pretty fast what he's trying to get across to him. And this is something that's insanely reassuring to me is God is more than capable of getting his message through. He's more than capable of getting you to know what he wants you to know if you are willing to know it, okay? And so it's just at that moment, whenever he's sitting there, verse 17, doubting in himself what the vision should mean, that the men are already at the gate. And so this is, this is neat because even the timing is organized by God. If you think, well, what if I miss it? What if we arrive at different times? What if this doesn't work? God is capable of working out the timing. And so it was just as Peter is sitting there wondering that he hears a noise and he looks down and there are people in the gate and they are looking for him. And I said it would be intimidating. It would be a little bit scary for him. It'd be a little bit scary for him if he hadn't already been prepared for this. But he hears this and he is already ready. He opens up the door. He says, I'm the one that you're looking for. Come on in. And if we're not understanding all that's going on in this passage, that seems like something unimportant. But remember, he is a Jew. He's prejudiced against the Gentiles, and they don't even like to enter in under the same roof. And now he has welcomed three Gentiles underneath the roof of Simon the Tanner. And Simon's probably like, what are you doing having them in my house? Right? And so they bring him in and he says, okay, what is all of this about? I know that God's working here. I know there's something going on, but what is this all about? And so they tell him and said, the Lord has come to Cornelius. He's been searching. He's been seeking after God. And God has pointed him in your direction. And we know that you have something that he needs to hear. Will you come with us and talk to Cornelius? And Peter says, gladly. But it's late in the day. It's a long journey. Uh, it's probably some 30 or 40 kilometers away. You don't want to make that journey in the evening, right? So they said, we've got to wait till the next day. And so they actually house these Romans in a Jewish house overnight. If it hadn't been for the vision that Peter had, if it wasn't for the way that the Lord was working in Peter's life, they never would have even been open to this idea. Okay? So they house them overnight. Early the next day, they take off on their journey. And that brings us to our last part here. And I know I need to kind of hasten a little bit. But whenever he goes to Caesarea, 
verse 23, Then called he them in, and lodged them, and on the morrow Peter went away with them, and a certain brother from Joppa accompanied them. And on the morrow, after they entered into Caesarea, and Cornelius waited for them, and he had called together his kinsmen and near friends. And as Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him, and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter took him up and said, Stand up, I myself am also a man. And as he talked with him, he went in and found many that were come together. And he said unto them, You know how that it is an unlawful thing for a man that is a Jew to keep company or come into one of another nation. But God has showed me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Therefore came I unto you without gainsaying, as soon as I was sent for, I asked therefore for what intent ye have sent for me. And Cornelius said, Four days ago I was fasting until this hour, and at the ninth hour I prayed in my house. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing, and said, Cornelius, thy prayer is heard, and thine alms are had in remembrance in the sight of God. Send therefore to Joppa, and call hither Simon, whose surname is Peter. He is lodged in the house of one Simon a tanner by the seaside, who when he cometh shall speak unto thee. Immediately, therefore, I send unto thee that, excuse me, and thou hast well done that thou art come. Now, therefore, are we all here present before God to hear all things that are commanded of thee. Now, if you can put yourself in Peter's position, he's just walked a long journey. He's confused by the vision. He's doing something he never thought that he would be doing, following a, a Gentile to a Gentile's house to speak to a Gentile, right? And so he gets to Cornelius' house, he goes in, and he says, okay, I've only got half the story. I know God's been dealing with me. He showed me these things that before I never would have even imagined this. I thought that salvation was of the Jews. I thought this was strictly for us. But God is expanding my understanding. He is teaching me a few things, and I realize that God's not just seeking to save the Jews, not just seeking to save the Samaritans, but he's seeking to save whosoever will. And so here I am, what's the story? What are you wanting? And he says, I've called all my family together. I've called all my friends together because I know that you have something that we need to hear. Let us have it. And so Peter begins to preach to them. Verse 34, he opened his mouth and he said, Of a truth, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons, but in every nation, he that feareth him and worketh righteousness is accepted with him. The word which God sent unto the children of Israel, preaching peace by Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. That word I say ye know, which was published throughout all Judea and began from Galilee uh, after the baptism which John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all things which he did, both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem, whom they slew and hanged on a tree. Him God raised up the third day and showed him openly, not to all people, but unto witnesses chosen before of God, even to us who did eat and drink with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach unto the people and to testify that which... Uh, that it is he which was ordained of God to be a judge of the quick and the dead. To him give all the prophets witness that throughout his, or through his name, whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. And so here's the message that Peter preached. He says, you already know about Jesus. 
You've lived in Jerusalem, or not Jerusalem, you've lived in Judea. You've heard of how he preached, how he went about doing good. You even know that he died and about how he was uh, said to have raised again. We are witnesses, we testify. He rose again the third day, and it is he which is going to be the judge of all mankind. That should be a fearful thing in the heart of man, that the God who created all things, that the Lord Jesus, who was slain by man and resurrected by God, that he is the one that is able to be a judge of all mankind. That means that there is guilt. That means that we have sinned. The Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But he doesn't leave it at that. This fearful idea that God is the judge, that Jesus is the judge. Verse 43, it says that, Through his name, whosoever believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. And so this is what Cornelius needed to hear. He says, I know there is a God. I want to seek him. I want to serve him. But there is something that's separating me, something that's keeping me away from him. And he says, I need to know the rest of the story. And Peter explains to him that Jesus Christ came to this earth because we were separated from God because of our sins. And so he took the punishment of our sins upon himself so that we can receive the righteousness of God imparted in us so that we can have salvation, so that we can have the remission of our sins, so that we can have eternal life with him. And so as Peter is preaching this and he says, this Jesus that you've heard of came so that you can have forgiveness, so that you can have the remission of sins, What's the response? In verse 44, it says, While Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on all them which heard the word. So they heard, whenever it registered in their heart, whenever they believed, they were born again. They were saved as it was signified by the Holy Ghost being upon them. At the moment which they believed, they didn't have time to be baptized. They didn't go through some kind of ceremony. They didn't perform penance. They didn't go through all these different works. They believed and God sealed them with the Holy Ghost. They were born again. They were his children. And verse 45 tells us that the Jews were amazed by this because they weren't expecting Gentiles to be welcomed in. So in verse 45, and they of the circumcision, the Jews, which believed were astonished as many as came with Peter because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then answered Peter, Can any man forbid water that these should not be baptized, which have received the Holy Ghost as well as we? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. Then prayed they him to tarry certain days. And so what we find in the end of this, God had prepared the sinner for the gospel. They were seeking, they were searching for him. And God made a way to connect the sinner with the saint so that they could hear what they needed to hear, so they could hear the truth of God's word, and so that they could be born again. God is seeking to save whosoever will. This is his desire. And so he brought all these things together, and it wasn't orchestrated by man. It was orchestrated by God. And so Peter, because he was in the place where he was seeking God, where he was serving God, God was able to direct his steps, bring him to this man that was searching, preach the gospel to him, and this man and his family and his friends and his household were born again. And it was a lesson to all of these people. It was showing them God's desire. It's not just for certain people. It's not just for a handful. It's not just for the select few. 
but God desires that all men come to salvation. But the Bible tells us that it's whosoever will. That it is by faith. It is by them trusting in him. It is by them accepting him. God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And God will do the work for those who are willing, those who are uh, seeking after him. God will bring all these things together. But if we reject him, if we have no desire for him, then he's not going to force himself on us. And so all through Acts chapter number 10, we see God bringing people together that are seeking after him and making his will be done. And it's a miracle. It's amazing. So with that, I better better wrap it up. Does anyone have any questions or comments on what we've looked at today? I think this book is very, very uh, unique. Unique in the sense that uh, God and the Holy Spirit, you know, brought about the compassion to Gentiles. Mm-hmm. Through Apostle Peter connecting with Cornelius, mm-hmm. each time I go through this, this scripture, I, I can't really, really, uh, I can't really, really, you know, inspired mm-hmm. because the the way the conversion of Cornelius and his household came about here is unique and dramatic, mm-hmm. uh, from the first chapter of the apostle to the last chapter is full of unique things happening in the life of mm-hmm. Gentiles and Jews mm-hmm. alike. Yeah. So one peculiar thing that happened here is the fact that God is no respecter of persons. Mm-hmm. He does not play favoritism. Yeah. He favored no man above the other. Right. But it's here we who are from Christian, we engage this favoritism game, mm-hmm. and that will help us to our yeah. I just might yeah. Well, that's a great thought, because as he's no respecter of persons, it doesn't matter uh, who we are, where we come from, what our nationality, what our background is, if we are willing to seek after him, if our desire is toward him, he is more than happy to work in us and through us. It doesn't matter so, three thoughts. Anything else? Okay, well, if there's nothing else, let's go ahead and go to the Lord in prayer, and we'll take a short break before the next service. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we come to you today. Thank you for your blessings. We do thank you for the day that you've given us, Lord. We thank you for those who've gathered out here and for our time around your word. We're thankful for the story of Cornelius and of Peter and just seeing how you worked behind the scenes and that you were preparing hearts and preparing lives for those who were seeking you, those who desired you. And Lord, we're thankful that it's not up to us to figure it all out, not up to us to make all the connections, Lord, but you're more than happy to to direct our steps and guide us where we need to be. And Lord, just help us to be in that place where we are, are leadable, where we are willing, where we are usable. Lord, we just thank you so much for all that you do. We ask you to do the needed work in the hearts and lives of each person here today. All these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen.